This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The reading from scripture this morning is from Paul's epistle to the Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word. All right, Presbyterians, beware. Uh, Galatians 4, 6 tells us something utterly astounding. Uh, If you're newer to the Bible, uh, the magnitude of what Paul writes here is likely something that has slipped past you. Uh, If you uh, have been following Jesus for a while, I guarantee you that you, like me, to some degree, have minimized what Paul has written here, particularly in verse 6. This is going to be our focus for the day. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It's absolutely astounding and significantly mysterious. God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, has sent his spirit uh, to be in the hearts of believers. Think about how awesome this truly is. Solomon uh, in 1 Kings 8 said this about God. He made the temple for God, and he doesn't say, God, move into the temple. He says, God, please keep an eye on the temple because I know that you're so huge. The heavens can't contain you, and the highest heavens can't contain you. So if you would, just keep an eye on this temple and have your ear pointed towards the prayers that proceed from this place. And Paul, Paul, excuse me, uh, David says in Psalm chapter 8, that this God that put the sun and the moon and the stars in place with his hands like a kid playing with Legos, he says that that God of that magnitude dwells in the hearts of believers. And so when Paul speaks of the heart, of course, he is not speaking of that physical organ, you know, that pumps blood through your body. He's talking about the core reality of each person. The Bible says that the heart thinks and feels and makes decisions. He's talking about your essence. He's talking about your core reality. And Paul says that God the Father has sent God the Spirit to be there and to exist there at the depths of your being. And so whether you're new to the Bible or maybe a longtime follower of Jesus, I need you to hear yet again today as if for the first time that God has sent the spirit of his son, the spirit of Jesus, into your heart. And I want to unpack this sending of the spirit in these ways. The prerequisite for the spirit, the ministry of the spirit, and the reception of the spirit. First, the prerequisite for the Spirit. In other words, what has to be true of you before the Spirit can be sent inside of you? 
Uh, Look at the beginning of verse 6. Here's our answer. Paul writes it this way. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. You'll see this on the, the screen behind me. The status of son is the prerequisite for receiving the spirit of the son. And so through all of chapter 3 and verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4, Paul is going to great lengths to prove to the Galatians and to us that if we trust in Jesus, if we believe in the gospel of Jesus, we are already sons of God. Our core status in God's eyes has been changed to that of beloved son. And Paul says in verse 6, logically, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The prerequisite for the spirit is the status. Now, verses 1 through 5 are new to us, and that, I mean, we stopped last week at the end of chapter 3. So I want to take a little bit of time and unpack the first five verses of chapter 4. It should be significant review if you've been here for a while. It should be uh, enough review uh, if this is your first Sunday. I want us to see these cultural metaphors that Paul is using in these verses so that we can see how magnificent this news is, uh, see it as magnificent uh, as the first century believer, okay? So if you would keep your eyes close to verses one through five, and we'll kind of walk through this. In verses one through five, Paul intentionally mixes two metaphors, and he's describing who we were as the people of God before the life and ministry of Jesus, and then he tells us who we are now as the people of God after the life and ministry of Jesus, And so first, uh, primarily in verses 1 and 2, again, it's a mixed metaphor, so they're going to blend together at the end, but in verses 1 and 2, Paul is alluding to a well-known legal and cultural process by which a young man would become an adult in Roman civilization. Okay, so in Jewish and Greek culture, there was a set age at which a boy became a man, but in Roman culture, there was no set age like, like, let's say, 12 or 18. There was this annual date on which many boys would become men if their dad said the time was right. And so every year on March 17, every royal family would celebrate a holiday known as the Liberalia. And if a dad had a son that in his mind was ready to become a man, he would declare the upcoming March 17th holiday as the date set by the father. The boy would officially and legally become a man. Again, it was not always age 12 like Jewish culture. It was not always age 18 like Greek culture. It was whatever age the boy was on the March 17th that his dad says he's ready. And so with that in mind, listen again, or at least look again at verses 1 and 2 and think about the first century audience and what they would have heard. Paul references literally a minor, M-I-N-O-R, not one who digs for coal, but one who is young. I'm from South Carolina. He references a minor, the child of a wealthy father, and he says, while a minor, although the child owns everything, practically the child is no different than a slave. Because he is, verse 2, under guardians and managers, look here, until the date set by his father. Now listen to this. During the liberalia, the father would legally, listen to this, it's different from what you're used to, he would legally adopt his own boy. He would give, in the eyes of the state and of the family, the full rights of a full-grown son to his own boy. So the phrase at the end of verse 5, adoption as sons, is one word in the original language, and it's a technical word. For when the biological child became an adopted child or an heir. And so in this culture, you could adopt someone who was not your biological child, and you could give them the full rights of your family, 
But in the Roman culture, to the Galatians, they would most often hear this word used of biological sons being adopted and becoming heirs. And so remember what we said in weeks past about the guardian. Remember we came across this this label, this title in chapter 3, verse 25, and in chapter 4, verse 2 now. The guardian or the pedagogue of a minor was this uneducated slave who authoritatively escorted the child through life through adolescence and into adulthood. And at the liberalia, the boy's primary relationship would go from being that with the guardian to being that with his dad. And so at age 16, we'll say, whenever the dad says the time is right, the guardian brings the son to his dad. His dad adopts him and he says, now I'm your primary relationship in this world. And so on the one hand, Paul says that before Jesus, God's people had the status of minors. They had the promise of direct relationship with the Father. They had the promise of future inheritance. But then after Jesus, all of those promises were fulfilled. And Paul is saying, you are an adopted son in the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you keep going, you're going to see Paul switch to a second metaphor in verses 3 and 5. So he says in verse 1 that the child functionally is no different than a slave. And then he actually uses the metaphor of a slave for God's people in verses 3 and 5. Again, if you were with us in chapter 3, all of this uh, should ring many bells, okay? In verse 3, Paul says that when we were children, we were enslaved to, quote, the elementary principles of the world, By that, Paul means the Old Testament law. That'll become more obvious in time this week and next week as we continue to read. You were enslaved to the law. But verse 4, God sent forth his son, verse 5, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So again, redeem is a word borrowed from Paul. Uh, Paul is borrowing this word from, from the Roman culture. To redeem a slave meant to pay off a slave's debt to the master. It's a technical term. And so sometimes uh, one slave owner would would technically redeem a slave from their current master in order to become their new master. Sometimes a slave would save enough money over time to redeem themselves from slavery and they would become free. Very infrequently, a wealthy and generous Roman would graciously redeem and and pay off a slave's debt and just hand them their freedom and say, you don't have to be a slave to me. But what Paul says here shatters the categories of the original audience. It goes beyond any of these. It's absolutely incredible. He says that Christ came into the world to redeem God's people from slavery and, verse 5, to make it possible for them to be adopted as full-grown sons. Jesus was not sent into the world to be a teacher who says, listen, if you'll follow my teaching and obey my principles, you can, you can obey more and more, and you can eventually earn your own freedom. Jesus was not sent into the world to be a generous deliverer, simply, who, who purchases your freedom for you and then says you're free to roam now within society. But verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law. But not just that, so that they might might receive adoption. They might receive full rights as sons. On the one hand, 
a child who becomes grown in the eyes of the state. On the other hand, a slave who was purchased out of slavery and not just given their freedom, but given adoption into the wealthiest family ever known. And we said last week, don't be offended by the statement that all of us, male and female, have been made sons of God. Paul, by this, is just saying that we're all adopted into God's family and that we're all heirs. In this culture, a woman could not be an heir. And so while the Bible does say that we are sons and daughters, we're children of God, like in Romans 8 or 1 John 3, here Paul is not speaking uh, so much about what we would think of as gender. He is just breaking through the barriers of this culture. And he is saying all men and women can be sons and that they can be heirs of the father and adopted into his family. So again, why do we go through all that? Because you have to understand that the prerequisite for receiving the spirit into your heart is something that was already accomplished for you by Jesus Christ. The logic of verse six tells us that in order to have the spirit sent into your heart, something has to be true. Verse six, and because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into your heart. How do we become adopted sons? How do we become sons with full rights? The life and ministry of Jesus. Better yet, faith in the life and ministry of Jesus, where God the Father sent him into the world when the fullness of time had come. So secondly, for this morning, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit. For, for what purpose does God send the Spirit of his Son into our hearts? In short, according to Paul in Galatians 4, 6, it's going to be on the screen behind me. The Spirit of the Son is sent into our hearts to convince us at our core that we actually are who we already are. The Spirit of the Son is sent into our hearts to convince us at the core that we actually are who we already are. Said differently, the Spirit leads us into seeing ourselves as God sees us, beloved children. So we're going to learn from Galatians, particularly next week, and we're going to learn from our own experience that what is true about our status, what is objectively true about us, is sporadically experienced by us subjectively in our hearts. So think with me. We know from our own experience that there is this gap between what the Bible says about us and how we see ourselves. There is a significant gap between how the Father actually feels about us and what we think he feels. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to decrease that gap between God's understanding of you and your understanding of God's view of you. The Spirit's ministry is to take your view and increasingly make it like the Father's view, not to minimize what the Father thinks of you, but to maximize your appreciation for what the Father already thinks of you. Because you see, as Christians, we have this propensity and this proclivity to lose sight of who we are. We have this propensity to think of ourselves as slaves. We have this propensity to approach life as if I've got to get out there and work hard and buy my redemption. And then we have this proclivity to see ourselves as just redeemed. We we tend to look at the death of Jesus on the cross and we think, by his blood, I'm now redeemed from slavery. I'm out of my indebtedness. And now I have to make something with my life. And Paul says, you're not just redeemed, you're redeemed and adopted, verse 5. And the Spirit's ministry in your heart is to convince you at the core that you actually are who you already are. Redeemed and adopted, beloved children and heirs. You 
You say, okay, Ted, I resonate with the need. I, I resonate with the need that the Spirit needs to close the gap between my view of me and God's view of me. I, I resonate with the need of my view of me being more like his view of me. I feel guilty and I feel anxious and I'm exhausted from trying to redeem myself and sometimes I feel forgiven, but I rarely feel cherished. I feel the need of which you speak. Show it to me in the passage. Look at verse six. And because you are sons, there it is, your objective status because of what Jesus did for you. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. There it is. The battleground is your subjective experience at the core of your being, crying, Abba, Father. There it is, bringing forth from your depths an awareness of and an enjoyment of being his child. And so this week, I spent more hours studying, reflecting on, thinking over, and praying about these three words than I ordinarily do an entire passage. Crying, Abba, Father. I have four thoughts I want to share with you regarding the ministry of the Spirit. First thought, and these should appear on the screen behind me. Most of you will already know this, but it's worth repeating in case this is new to you. The word Abba is an Aramaic word transliterated into the Greek. It's a title by which dads and granddads would be called by toddlers and young children. We know from early church fathers, particularly those who lived in Antioch, particularly those who spoke Aramaic, that this title, this label Abba indicates tenderness and vulnerability. It indicates rich enjoyment and deep intimacy between a loving daddy or a loving papa and their trusting child or trusting grandchild. And the Spirit goes into us and gets us to call Dad, uh, God by his preferred name, Daddy. An old friend of mine tweeted this yesterday. I, again, think this will be on the screen behind me. I thought it perfectly captures the heart of a daddy. He said this, if heaven is perfect joy, then I think we will all be father to a six-year-old girl. Forever won't be enough time. If heaven is perfect joy, then I think we will all be father to a six-year-old girl forever won't be enough time, thereby expressing in however many characters or less his feelings for his daughter. And the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to convince you at your core that this is how God, your Abba, feels about you. The ministry of the Spirit is to increasingly convince you at the core that your relationship with God is fundamentally and pervasively a relationship between a loving and accepting and committed daddy with his young child who has all the rights of sonship, rights that can never be revoked. Second thought. Paul is not speaking about a regular and ritualistic crying out of Abba, Father. As if the work of the Spirit is to get you to stop a set number of times and find a private place and scream as loud as you can, ritualistically, Abba, Father. Okay, so this is, this is not about a regular and ritualistic crying out. This is about the disposition of your heart. Although it may flow through our lips, this cry is from the heart and not the lips. The word Paul uses, translated crying, is not a word for prayer. Never in the Bible is this used for prayer. Although this cry, I guess, could be a prayer. It's a word for passionate exclamation. It's a word used in the Greek language for a gut-level response to external stimuli. 
It's a word for the communication of deep internal realities. It's a word for the communication of instincts. In other words, this word is used to describe the expression of core realities in response to intense situation. It's never used for prayer, certainly not ritualistic and rehearsed prayer. This word is used in the New Testament several dozen times, and it's always used in this way. It's always used to describe, well, let me give you some examples. I'll tell you that. It's used to describe the communication of demons and their deepest fears when they see Jesus for the very first time. This word is used to describe a woman's deep pain when she's going through labor. This word is, is used to describe Peter's communication of fear when he's drowning. All of these are negative in nature, but there's just as many that are positive. For example, it's used to describe the crowd's expressed delight at Jesus' triumphal entry. In other words, this word crying is used in the Greek language when a deep, gut-level, passionate, core emotion is being expressed. So I want you to get this. Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit moves into your heart and increasingly transforms the disposition of your heart towards God and increasingly makes the instinctual expression of your heart, Abba, Father. Think about it. Intense situations reveal core realities. What do you say when you honk the horn, right? That's an intense situation, brings forth a core reality, right? To Kradzo, Abba, Father, that's the Greek word, to kradzo, Abba, Father, means that the core belief about our relationship with God has moved from distant father, uh, distant God to near father. It's moved from, from harsh master to kind daddy. It's moved from angry judge to accepting papa. In order for it to be a kradzo, an exclamation, it has to be a true reality in your depths. And so I thought about these three words for a very long time this week, and I realized it's not so much about the actual words coming out of your mouth as the disposition of your heart that will produce these words instinctually when you're in intense situations. Third thought. God is so committed to your experience of your status, he cries out from your heart. God is so committed to your experience of your status, he cries out from your heart. All right, there's incredible mystery here. It would take us weeks of sermons to begin to unpack this mystery, and at the end, we would throw up our hands and say, that was mysterious. <laughs> but, but look at the verse again. God has sent the Spirit, singular, of his Son, singular, into our, plural, hearts, plural, crying, singular, Abba, Father, who from your depths cries, Abba, Father the Spirit of the Son. Now, the doctrine of the indwelling Spirit is wonderfully mysterious. Somehow, without him losing his divinity and somehow you without losing your humanity, somehow God takes up residence in your heart and he lives inside of you and the indwelling is so intimate that Paul can actually say it's the Holy Spirit within you crying out through you. There's this parallel passage on this teaching in the book of Romans. It's Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced Paul wrote Romans because people were confused by Galatians. Because almost every passage in Galatians gets its own chapter in Romans. And this is what he says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 15. It should be on the screen behind me. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. Look at this. By whom... 
we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Somehow, some way, when the Spirit cries, Abba, Father, Galatians 4, we cry, Abba, Father, Romans 8. You remember how I told you of that text where Paul writes to Timothy, I want you to think about the Bible and the Holy Spirit will give you understanding? Again, we have these verses that speak of this mysterious indwelling, but when you press too far, you just have to give up and say, now that is mysterious. But I don't want you to miss the point. God is so committed to you believing and enjoying your sonship. He's so committed to you believing and enjoying your status in Jesus Christ. God is so committed to you uh, to believe and enjoy your acceptance and enjoyment the way he likes you, like a dad with his toddler. He's so committed. He moves into your core. He convinces you of the truth, and he cries out for you and through you. This means that any time you live out of confidence and joy and delight, regardless of how well you're behaving, you're experiencing and enjoying the miraculous and the powerful work of God the Holy Spirit. Fourth, beware of Presbyterians. This ministry of the whole, just so you know, it's a Presbyterian church, although they are always trying to kick me out of the Presbytery. Just, just joking, sort of. <laughs> the ministry of the Holy Spirit is experienced both ordinarily. See, this is the part that's Presbyterian, the words, right? It's experienced ordinarily and extraordinarily, okay? But using the word extraordinary is quite un-Presbyterian. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is experienced both ordinarily and extraordinary, extraordinarily. While verse 6 is first about the ordinary disposition of the heart, changing the disposition of the heart so that your instinct is to cry, Abba, Father. There are times in our lives where God gives us an extraordinary, subjective experience of himself. And sometimes in those experiences, we will actually cry out, Abba, Father, or something like it. So I reflected on these three words long enough to realize it was about the disposition of your heart, and then I reflected a little longer and realized it was about more than just that. If you reflect on these words, you'll, you'll come up with three realizations. First, you can't constantly cry out, Abba, Father. So Paul must mean something more than that. Second, Paul means primarily that this is the Spirit making the ordinary disposition of your heart such that you will cry out, Abba, Father, in instinctual ways in intense situations. But that said, third, Paul also means that there will be times in the Christian's life where their heart cries out, where their heart exclaims, where their heart shouts, Daddy. Because the current experience of the Father evokes such a response, only, the only thing you can do is to cry, Abba. And what I am not saying is that if your lips don't exclaim, Abba, Father, every now and then because you're so excited, I'm not saying you're not experiencing the gospel. But what I am saying is that if your heart doesn't exclaim, Abba, Father, every now and then because you're so excited and you feel so loved, that I am saying that if your, your heart's not crying out, then you're not yet experiencing all that Jesus has for you in the gospel. So on the one hand, the ministry of the Spirit is experienced ordinarily. And what I mean by that is that over time, he's going to take you to a place of rest and confidence in life because you're increasingly believing and living out of the way in which God sees you. And so I think an ordinary effect of the Spirit's work in our lives is easily seen in our prayer life. And so like Jesus, when he's preaching on, on the, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, our call to worship, 
While praying, there will be times where we are tempted uh, to pray in impressive ways, uh, trying to impress other people. And there will be times where we're going to try and impress God by how we pray, that is, praying meritoriously, that is, trying to get a distant God to pay attention to us and to accept us. But Jesus says that when we pray, he says, know that you're praying to your Father who loves you. Know that you're praying to your Father who already knows what you need. Know that you're praying to your Father who's paying attention to you. Know that you're praying to your Father who knows what's going on in your life. And so an ordinary way in which we experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit is when we actually go to God as loving Father, the way in which Jesus describes it in Matthew 6. But on the other hand, it's the height of rationalism to say that all Paul means in verse 6 is that we will increasingly pray to a near Father instead of a distant God. There are many Greek words Paul could have used here if he wanted to to express that intent. Paul doesn't say that God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts praying, Abba, Father. There are four New Testament words I can think of right now uh, that, that mean praying. Paul doesn't use any of those. And Paul doesn't say that God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts to, quote, change the disposition of our hearts, although that's clearly included in what he's saying. Paul uses the word for exclamation and passionate experience because this is to be expected by us as part of our experience. An emotional experience where our hearts and sometimes our lips cry out in response to what God is doing, Abba, Father. And I realize that this is phenomenological. Here's that word again. Phenomenological is this word I will use occasionally or or, or too often maybe, and phenomenological means that there's a truth that you have to experience to understand the words used be, being used to describe it. Phenomenological means you're describing an experience that you have to have had to understand the words being used to describe it. I cannot apologize for speaking phenomenologically. Christianity is not just concepts, it's experience. Christianity is not just, concept, I'll say it this way, Christianity is not just objective status. It's subjective spiritual experience. And Paul is saying here, not just the disposition of your heart, but extraordinary times of so enjoying the presence of God and the love of the Father that all you can do is yell, uncle. The great Charles Spurgeon, while speaking in reference to this verse in Galatians, taught this. There will be times in the Christian life where the presence and love of God is so powerful, strong, glorious, and palatable that the Christian will find themselves begging the Father to stop because they fear that they might die from the goodness and the joy and the weight of it all. The Puritans taught that there will be and should be times in our lives where God's powerful and loving and glorious presence is so near to us that all we can do is respond and exclaim, Abba, Father, because nothing else will do justice to the experience. The Puritans called these moments thin spaces because the perceived space between heaven and earth, between God the Father and you, was so obviously thin. In my life, I have experienced the extraordinary aspect of what Paul is talking about here upon occasion. Sometimes while fasting and praying, but not always while fasting and praying. Sometimes while listening to music while walking down the beach, but not always while listening to music and walking down the beach. Sometimes while studying theology in my office and preparing for a sermon, but not every time I study theology and prepare for a sermon. 
Sometimes when I'm watching my children frolic and play in an outdoor setting, but certainly not every time I watch my children frolic and play in an outdoor setting. And so this is not the ordinary experience of the believer. Exclamations are by definition abnormal. But part of the definition of the extraordinary and part of the, del- the delight of extraordinary is that it's not ordinary. So to restate it, Paul certainly means here that the ministry of the Spirit is to constantly transform the disposition of your heart. But by using the word he uses, he means that occasionally the disposition of your heart will be expressed in passionate ways in response to external realities. So first, the prerequisite for the Spirit is the status of the Son. And second, the ministry of the Spirit is to increasingly convince you and sometimes extraordinarily convince you that you actually are who you already are. And third, the reception of the Spirit. Let's say that you see the value in your, that you see the value in your heart's disposition towards God uh, evolving and growing from, from slave or orphan to son, uh, to, to beloved child. So let's say you see the value in this. Let's say that you've had extraordinary experiences and now you know how to define them biblically and you frankly want more. Uh, Let's say that the ordinary disposition of your heart uh, is now changing. You realize that God is working on you. God is chasing you. You realize that God is saving you. So let's say that the ordinary disposition of your heart is changing, but you want an extraordinary experience, even if just one. How can you, third, receive the Spirit? Uh, Said differently, how can you increasingly avail yourself to the ministry of the Spirit? I want you to know that Paul speaks in paradoxical ways about the Spirit in Galatians. On the one hand, Paul will say that we received, past tense, the Spirit when we were converted. And on the other hand, Paul will talk about the ongoing supply of the Spirit into the believer's life in present tense language. And what this tells us is that if we're believers, the Spirit has been uh, sent to us and is in us and will never leave us. And at the same time, our experience of the Spirit's presence and ministry in us uh, increases over time. And so what, what Paul teaches us is we have the Spirit and we can't lose the Spirit but our experience of and enjoyment of the Spirit can go up because God, in Galatians 3, 5, is continually supplying you with the Spirit. So how do you receive the Spirit? Anticlimactically, for the sake of time, and redundantly, if you were here a few months ago, put this on the screen. Galatians 3, 2 and 5 teaches us that we continually and increasingly receive the supplied Spirit by hearing with faith the preaching of Christ crucified. In chapter 3, verse, uh, verse 2, Paul, Paul asked the Galatians how they initially received the Spirit. And the answer to that question was not by obeying and performing and doing the right thing. The answer to the question was hearing with faith the gospel of Jesus Christ preached. Hearing with faith the preaching of Jesus Christ crucified. That's how they received the Spirit. And then in verse 5 of chapter 3, Paul asks them how they presently experience the, the, the present tense supply of the Spirit. And the answer is the exact same. They heard with faith the gospel of Christ crucified. And so what we can gather from this is that the disposition of your heart towards God is incrementally changed as you hear with faith the good news of Jesus' death for you. 
The disposition of your heart, that ordinary change inside of you happens as you hear with faith the good news of Jesus' death for you. As the son was disowned on the cross for you, you increasingly believe that you were adopted because he was disowned. As you hear again and again that God was furious with Jesus on the cross as he paid for your rebellion, you increasingly believe and understand that the Father can't be furious with you and in fact the Father must delight in you because that is what he felt for Jesus when Jesus traded places with you and made a deal with the Father. And so you see, you receive the ongoing supply of the Spirit by hearing the gospel of faith. And as you hear the gospel and as you grow in the faith, your heart incrementally changes and the disposition of your heart goes from distant God to near Father. But what about these extraordinary experiences? What about these exclamations? All I can notice say is this. You can't force them and you can't initiate them. But you increase your readiness for them And I believe you increase the frequency of them by hearing with faith the gospel preached. So think about it. The demons didn't seek out Jesus. They responded to his presence. The woman can't force labor. She can only respond to it when it happens. The people tried to force Jesus into Jerusalem, but he wouldn't go on their timetable. They could only respond when he went. And this is my point. You can't initiate the crying Abba Father. But I believe, and it's been my experience, that you can increase your readiness for it and the frequency of the experiences by hearing with faith the gospel preached. You realize, of course, that the last thing Jesus did on the cross before dying under the curse of God, you realize what the last thing was, right? Sometime after asking, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Again, the only time where a prayer of Jesus is recorded in the Gospels where he doesn't say my father, but he says my God. So so sometime after that, Matthew 27, 50 reads this, and Jesus cried out again. And with a loud voice, he yielded up his spirit. At the realization that he was losing the spirit and entering hell, Jesus responded with a crodzo. He gave up his spirit and he died so that his spirit could be given to us by grace. Allowing us to not pray, my God, my God, but my Father who are in heaven and allowing us to experience God and cry out, Abba, Father, in abundant life, and not death. Jesus cried out in death so that at God's sovereign timing and initiative, we might cry out, Abba, Father, in those times when extraordinarily struck by the grace and the goodness of the gospel and the Father's love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths in this text. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that the extent of what you have done in the gospel has not just changed our status for us, but you move into us and you change our experience uh, within us. Uh, We thank you, uh, Jesus, um, that you decided Uh, that you wanted to be with us forever as your brothers and sisters. And so you decided to go to the cross 
and be abandoned by the Father after a beautiful life so that we could be adopted by the Father in the midst of our wretched lives. We thank you, Jesus, that you wanted to be with us forever and share your spirit with us, so you decided to lose your spirit in your death so that we might have your spirit in us now and forever. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and give us understanding of these things. We realize that we minimize these mysterious and great things when we don't understand them, and we want to be stretched. We want to have our understanding of you and your ways stretched beyond our current capacities so we might understand you and enjoy you more and more. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you uh, would protect this word that has been planted in our hearts. I pray that you would not allow the enemy to pluck this word out of our hearts, but that you would, in fact, allow us to meditate upon these things to understand these things and to even experience these things in the future. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.